0: Chapter eleven, verse twenty-seven. Now we begin the next toledot, the next account, and this is the account of Terah. Now remember, this isn't necessarily the account of Terah, but what Terah produces, and what Terah produces is Abraham. And so what we learn is that Terah is a descendant of the scattering. He's a man under judgment. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now notice, Adam had three sons. Noah had three sons. Not that these are the only sons they had, but the only ones that we're told about. And now Terah has three sons. So we're beginning this pattern again. Here we go. Starting all over again. And Aran became the father of Lot. Now, notice that these guys probably had other sons and daughters, but we're only being told about the ones that are specific to the story. Remember, we're not being told everything. (laughs) We're only told what we need to know for the story. Haran became the father of Lot, Haran died in the land of the birth, and Ur, the Chaldeans. That word Chaldeans is the ruling class of the Babylonians. Now there are no Babylonians yet, but by the time the author is writing, the original readers coming out of Egypt don't know Ur so much as a city-state of Ur, but they know it more as the Babylonians. Chaldeans are the ruling class of the Babylonians. While his father Terah was still alive, and Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. But Sarai was barren and had no children. We're told that they live here. They have three sons. A lot of these names, we don't know what they mean, but there might be some paganism attached to it. Now, Abram's name, we do know what it means, and it means exalted father. Abraham's name basically means Terah is exalted and that's not uncommon because you have to remember Terah is the king we're tribal people now and all we and this is why we they're called the patriarchs patra meaning father ark meaning ruler the ruling fathers so they're the they're kings in their in their essence tribal nomadic kings and so of course he's going to be the exalted one because he is the head of the family which means people do what he tells them to do because he is the king. And we're told that Terah is going to take his family and he's going to move them from Ur all the way up to Haran. It's going to be in Haran that God is going to speak to Abram and then Abram's going to come down to Canaan. Okay? Now, you don't go this way because that's the desert and that's not wise. So you follow the fertile cre- fertile crescent. And so we're told this, but what we do know is Joshua chapter 24 tells us that when God came to Abram, he was worshiping the pagan gods. So God doesn't, Abram doesn't know who Yahweh is. If he does, he's just another pagan god in a pantheon of other pagan gods. And he is not worshiping him. He is not loyal to him. So this is very important because this shows that Abram is not being called by God because he proved himself worthy. God chose him because no one is worthy to be chosen. God chose him because he wanted to. And we don't know really why. I mean, one of the reasons we do know why is, one, he is not a nation. And two, his wife is barren. But other than that, there's lots of people that that could be true of. And so God comes to him and he calls Abram. And he's going to call him out of this scattered world. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 are the most important verses and one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Exodus chapter 6 is probably the other one. And 19. As well, or Sorry, Exodus 19 is the other one. Because this becomes the foundation to everything. So there's a chiastic structure in Abraham's life. So we're going to pause. So we'll come back to that. This one, rather than having one point, one line, X, that is the center of everything. Now we have a double parallel line. And the f- center of this story, you see these doublets. So with the genealogy of Terah, it ends with the genealogy of Nahor. We have the promise of a son. And B, at the bottom, we have the birth of the son. So we see that the fulfillment of that promise. And D, we see Lot settle Sodom. And in D, we see, um, sorry, in C, Abraham lies about Sarah. C, Abraham lies about Sarah. And D, Lot settles Sodom. Lot flees Sodom. A, e, Abraham intercedes and E Abraham intercedes. And you're going to get two doublets here. You're going to have two stories of Lot. You're going to have two stories of Sarah not showing faithfulness. And you're going to have two stories of Hagar and Ishmael trying to threaten the promises. And you're going to see these doublets. These things are all threatening promises. Lot twice threatens the promises of God. Sarai and her disobedience twice threatens the promises of God. Ishmael and Hagar twice together threaten the promises of God. In the middle of it all, The focus of the whole life of Abraham is on God making a covenant with Abraham. Despite these doublets of threatening the promises of God, God makes a covenant showing that nothing can threaten his promise. Nothing can threaten it. And so the covenant that is detailed out in chapter 15 and detailed out in chapter 17 is the heart of this story. And we'll develop that more as we go. But before you can understand 15 and 17, you must understand 12. These three verses. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go out from your country, your relatives, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. And I will bless those who bless you but the one who treats you lightly I must curse, so that all the families of the earth will bless one another by your name. These are the promises for Abraham. The first promise is this. God commands him to go, and he says, I will give you a land. I will give you a land. Now, this is incredibly, incredibly important, because the first thing that God is saying is this. The poetic nature of these verses is emphasizing that this is a very important part of the story. We now move from the be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth promise to now a very specific I'm going to give you a land promise. The garden that they have lost is now the land is going to be getting the garden restored. If you hang on for me in a couple of years when we get to Joshua, <laughs> I'll just show you how Israel actually looks like the Garden of Eden. When he actually puts them in there. It actually looks like a tabernacle too. The reality is God comes and says, I'm going to give you land. Number one, land. Now that's important because remember land, humanity is the image, and God are the three most important things in all the creation account. And so God comes to Abraham to restore him as the image and then says, I'm going to give you land. It's time to reestablish the garden. Now that you know why you need me to reestablish the garden, it's time to do it. I'm gonna give you a land. Now, this presents a couple of difficulties. One, Abraham doesn't have a land, he doesn't have a nation, he doesn't have an army to take a land. Most of the lands are already occupied. How is he gonna get a land? Two, Sarai is barren. Abraham's 75 years old, she's 65. <coughs> Okay, the likelihood of them having kids are very nil. How in the world is he going to take a land when he has no children? And it won't really be his. Okay, he's got servants and all that kind of stuff. But when he dies, it'll be their land, not his land. And so by ending, beginning this with, and Sarai was barren, it lets us know that God's promises on a human level are kind of dumb. Unless you have learned who God is. Unless you've been paying attention to who God is, you realize this is not that big of a deal. This is not a big of a deal. And so God promises him this land. You also understand that to be without children is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you in the ancient world. See, children are how you continue your name and your line and your inheritance. Children are the ones that take care of you when you're old. Children are the ones who bury you properly. See, most people don't know when they were born. Remember, they don't have cl- calendars and clocks like we do. Birthdays were not celebrated like they are in America. What was, what was truly the most important thing about your life was your death and burial. Now, that sounds kind of depressing and sad. On, like, wow. Yeah. But the point is that the afterlife is everything. The few years that you're here is nothing compared to the eternity in the afterlife. And how you are buried is so important. We've got a few rituals in America, but not rituals that are dependent upon you having a good life in the afterlife. We basically, there's a certain way you do a coffin, a certain way that you have a ceremony, and a certain way you put it on the ground, and then you walk away. But if none of that really happens, we don't think it's the end of the world. When you go to the Egyptians and the American Indians and the Aztecs and the Mayans and all, they have these rituals. And if you don't do these rituals right, these people are not going to have good existences in the afterlife. So children are important for that, for your eternal security. Children are important for continuing your name in line because people don't live forever. So the only way that you have eternal life is through your biology, your genetics moving on. And then the only way... What's the point of amassing a bunch of stuff and building your own empire if nobody's going to inherit it and take good care of it? So children's what keeps what you've built going after you. Children are everything. And to not have children is considered a curse of the gods. You've done something bad or evil that the gods have punished you. The fact that Sarai and Abram are 65, 75 years old and still have no children, they, the gods, do not like them. Which means there might be a good chance that beyond their family, they probably have no friends. Because the reality is, is, in a highly superstitious culture where the gods have cursed you and the gods are jacked up and fickle and it doesn't take much for them to curse you too, you probably don't want to be hanging out with somebody who's cursed by the gods for fear that it will happen to you. If you're family, there's nothing you can do about that because family loyalty is everything and you're already biologically connected to them so there's nothing that's going to protect you from that contagious, superstitious cursing. So there's, they have their family and that's probably it. And, a, uh, and a, Both man and woman. I know we often think like a woman's identity and values wrapped up in having children but so is the man because that's just as important to him. But a woman who has no children is seen as an absolute failure in life. And so Sarah is talk about depression, lack of significance, no meaning and purpose in life, probably no real girlfriends, feeling like she's been judged and condemned by the gods, and probably super fearing what her life in the afterlife was gonna be. Because if she's not been able to continue to create life in this life, then what in the world do the gods have in store for them? So we're talking about people who have fear, they're condemned, they have no hope, meaning, or purpose in life, and there's a great fear of the afterlife, and the gods have been nowhere there for them. And also, one day, this God comes out of the middle of nowhere and speaks to Abraham. Abram, and not only has Abram probably never heard of anybody speaking to you, the only people that hear the God speak to them are the elite who are born to a very royal, special family, who are educated far than everybody else, and have proven themselves worthy to get up into the top of the temple. He hasn't come to farmers and nomads. And now this God comes down into this insignificant, pagan, unworthy, cursed and condemned person who has no self-value and meaning, and says, I, 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 I am going to give you, give you, give you, give you all you have to do is follow me. In the ancient world, if you want that from the gods, you have to do sacrifices. You have to jump through hoops. You have to manipulate things. You have to do these rituals. You have to cut your hand. You have to bleed in this. You got to do the animal. You got to do all these things. And even then, and God just says, just follow me and I'll do this for you. And what becomes even more powerful is Abram will not always follow God. And yet God will keep honoring his promises. Why does God, Abram, drop everything in cold turkey, follow Yahweh? Because it's better than anything he's ever had before. And what's the worst that can happen to him? The gods are going to curse him. He's already cursed. And this is a God who's going to undo the curse of the Tower of Babel. This is the God that's going to come to a family that only has death. And then he died, and then he died, and he died. And he's going to be resurrection into their life. He's going to take a dead, lifeless womb and he's going to resurrect it, because he is the God of life. And so God says, land. The next thing he says, number two, now knows he's told to leave his father's household. Your father's household is the epitome of everything in the Tower of Babel. Your father's household is the epitome of paganism. You need to walk away from that. Now that's a huge test of faith right off the bat, because to walk away from your family's God's, And to walk away from your family is basically you're dead to the family. Your family's going to turn around and say, you're you're ostracized. And that still happens in a lot of places of the world to this day. So that means Abram is losing his inheritance. He's losing whatever you get from his father. He's losing his relationship with his father. He's going to be ostracized, and he has no way of going back. And it may not be to that full extreme, but some sense it is. And if he's leaving his land You can only be raised by your gods. Now, resurrection does not mean bodily resurrection to them. Resurrection for them is just spirit going into the afterlife. The the idea of resurrection meaning bodily resurrection does not come until the Jewish nation in Christ. Back then, it's just spirit alive in the afterworld. But because your gods only control that land and can't control other lands, to leave that land means that you will have no resurrection, into the afterlife. Which means you're going to be forever sleeping in the grave with no awakening. This is why it's so important when Ruth says, I will go where you will go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, I will be buried where you are buried. She's, she's risking her eternal life here on that one. He's giving up eternal security too, as well as his familial civil security. The other thing you need to realize too is as a nomad, the only way that you find rights and protection, you know, all those rights that we claim as Americans, all those things that we find protection from the cops and the army because we pay our taxes, because we have our allegiance to a government, all those things that we find, he doesn't find because he's a nomad. The only way he finds those rights being protected from a king that wants to abuse it or any of that kind of stuff is by being a part of his family. And his family is so big because everybody has lots of kids and everybody's had kids upon kids upon kids that there's a tribe that Tara rules over. And so that family, they provide protection of civil rights and land inheritance and all that kind of stuff from other kings that want to abuse that. By leaving that, he's also giving up all that. He's giving up the ability to have cops protect them because that's his family. Have fires put out, because that's his family. To have his rights protected, because it's family. He's walking away from everything. Talk about somebody who's literally giving up national identity, familial identity. All, of, all those rights that we claim and say, this is my right, God's telling you, give it all up. Give it all. You have no more rights. Trust me that I'll protect your rights. That's what God's saying here. Leave it all you will literally have nothing and no one and nothing to protect you and no rights at all do you trust me that's big how many americans could say that i'm going to stop fighting for my rights period and i don't care if america takes them all away because i trust god will protect my rights that's big that's big so then the second thing he says is this i will make you into a great nation and i will bless you And I will make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. Wait a minute. How do I become a great nation if I have no kids? But this is what God says. You're not going to make your name great in the Tower of Babel. I'm going to make your name great. This is the point that God is making with David. David says, I want to build you a house, God, as a physical building for you to live in. And God says, I don't need a house. But then God turns around and says, I'm going to make you a house. And what he means is, I'm going to give you the line that will never end. And then he says, and then I'm going to make that house bear my name. Which means you don't build a house trying to make my name look good. I build you a family that will make my name look good. And then he says that will be an eternal house. That house is used four times in completely different ways when you go through 2 Samuel chapter 7. What is the point? You don't make my name great. I make your names great. You cannot make God great with what you do. God can only make you great with what he does. And when he makes you great, defying the impossible, then all glory goes to him because there's no way you could have pulled that off. And that's what God is saying here. You don't make yourself great, humans, Tower of Babel. You don't make my name great. I make your name great. And I'm going to put my name, which is character, on you. And people are going to see a character that they've never seen anywhere else, and they're going to want to be a part of me. And then they're going to be blessed. Because when people look at you, you're going to be the example, exemplary of blessing. When people look at Abraham, they're going to think he is the most blessed person the world has ever seen. He's going to go from the most cursed, abandoned person to the most blessed person. And everybody's going to look at Abraham and say, I want what he has. And Abraham says, let me tell you about my God. That's the point. So I'm going to make you a fruitful multiply into a great nation. That's the second thing that God promises them. I will bless those, verse 3, who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. The third blessing is I will protect you. I will become your civil rights judge. I will become your inheritance. I will become your police department. I will become your army. I will become your fire department. I will be all that for you. And notice that God says those who disdain you, I will curse. The disdain is to throw insults that are undeserving at somebody. To curse means judgment, ruin. Now, normally God says the punishment should fit the crime. But in this case, when it's talking about divine blessing, God actually amps up the judgment. Whoever disdains my people, I will remove all protection from that person. But what's also interesting is that It says, but those who bless you, I will bless. But he who curses, disdains you, I will curse. The contrast between those and he implies that more people will want to bless Abraham than they will want to disdain him. Why? Because Abraham will become so blessed by God that more people will be attracted to that than will actually go against it and try to curse it. Yes, there will always be people out there who, no matter how godly we are and how blessed we are, and no matter how much we point to God, they will want to persecute us and hurt us. But at the same time, the majority of people, your good behavior and righteous behavior will heap burning coals on their heads that will convict them and make them want to come to God. Yes, there will be persecution, but most people will say, wow, I want what you have. How do you have that? And that's what God is saying. Yes, the judgment for them disdaining you is going to be way beyond what they've done to you. But more people want to be a part of you. More people will use your name as a blessing. I will protect you. And then the third one is, the fourth one, is the most important. So that you may be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is key because this ties us back into the Tower of Babel. Where I judged and scattered all the nations I am now going to do this for you so that you'll be a blessing for all the nations. See, the nations thought that they could build their own tower to bless themselves. I'm going to build you a nation so you can be a blessing to everybody else. This is the most important thing. This is the theme that you should be looking for as you look at the Abraham story. Is Abraham being a blessing or is he being a thorn in the side to people? And that's the thing. The whole point is that God doesn't just bless you and make you great just because he wants to. He does it so that other people can be blessed. Now, these are the promises. And hopefully you're beginning to see that this is the four promises of the entire Bible. If you don't get these four promises, you don't get the cross. Because it is, this is the bedrock foundation that God is going to slam the cross into And Jesus is going to die on it so that he can give us a land and heaven. A name that is great because now we can be called children of God, heirs to the throne. Those who are chosen so that God can bless us. So that when we become, we have joy and hope and peace that passes all understanding in the midst of suffering and conflict. People will say, I want what you have. And we are always ready to give a defense for the hope that is found in us so that they will come to us and we will become a bigger nation, not nation, people group, a body that we will be a blessing to all the people of the earth. Thus the Great Commission, go out and make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is going to become the beginning of the logical conclusion of the book of First Peter, and the Great Commission, and Pentecost, and all that kind of stuff. And so without this, you have no real definition for what we are supposed to be today. The difference is that Israel couldn't do it because humans are fallen. We can do it, not because we've somehow figured it out and become better, but because we now have the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And that's going to be the other constant theme is that now we have this new theme of, this is what humanity is, but this is what God wants to do with humanity. But because of humanity is, they will keep failing to be what God wants them to be. Therefore, humanity needs to have their hearts circumcised in order to become something different. And this is the gospel presentation. If you really look at the gospels, the gospel presentation is not your sinner and Christ died for you so that you can have eternal life. The gospel presentation is that humanity is forever rebelling against God to which there is no end. But God has made them into a people that they cannot be because of their sin. Therefore, notice that when the gospel is first introduced, it's first introduced as the king has come. That's the gospel in the gospels. The gospel in the gospels is the king is here, the king is here, the king is here. The one who can actually be what none of Israel was able to be is here. And then when he comes here, he makes us into a new people group that the world has never seen. It defies ethnicities, sexes, and social classes so that we can become a new people. A new people that are unified in love so that the world will know who we belong to by the way that we love each other and the way we're unified. Which is why one of the worst things that you could ever do is get on Facebook. And when somebody disagrees with you politically, start acting like they're not a Christian because they have that view. If there's one way that you want to really destroy what God is starting here in these three verses, it's don't be unified as a church. Does that mean we have to agree on everything? No. No. But does that mean we throw out spears and say, I mean, I, had a, I have two really close friends, and one really close friend, both of them I grew up with, over this refugee thing. And the one friend out of the blue just said on Facebook, you know what, I looked up to you, you were my mentor all those years, I thought you were a Christian, but it's so obviously that there's nothing really Christian about you if you take this view on the refugee thing. That's worse than thinking that refugees shouldn't be allowed in. Because now what we are, we are no longer the body of Christ." The very thing that Christ died for, if you really go into the Greek, it is not you, 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 you singular. It is us. Christ died for it to make a community. He didn't just die to save you. That's part of the gospel, but that's a little drop. He died to save you so that you could become a part of a community that will expand the garden. And if we can't be unified, then we're failing. And this is why the only prayer that you have recorded of Jesus in the entire Bible is chapter 17 of John, and it says, I pray that they will be unified with each other as you and I are unified in the Trinity, and that they will be unified with us as we are unified with each other. That's the only prayer of Christ that's ever recorded. The Lord's Prayer doesn't technically count. That's a, a template of how to pray. But out of his heart, his own words, That's the only prayer. Why? Because that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And it starts here. God is taking Abram out of a people to make him into a new people so that he can be a different kind of a people to get all the other people into this people so that they can all be blessed. Does that make sense? This is the foundation. Now there's some obstacles. We're told that Sarai is barren, obstacle number one. The second obstacle is we're told that there's Canaanites living in the land. That's a big obstacle because what it means is the land is already occupied. And two, it's occupied with some pretty nasty people, which means Abraham could be quickly influenced. How do you know that he'd be influenced in a bad way? Lot going to Sodom. The third obstacle we're found is he takes Lot with him. Now here's the double whammy here. Abram is incredibly loyal to God because we're told that when Abram left Terah, he was, Abram was 75 years old. So Terah had Abram when he was 70. We're told that Abram leaves Terah when Abram is 75. So 70 plus 75 is 145. But then we're told that Terah doesn't die until he's 205, another 60 years later, which means did Abram actually obey God and leave his family? Yes. Yes. He left Terah 60 years before his father died. So he cold turkey dropped everything and went south to a land that he did not know. But there's this little subtle but, he took Lot with him. Now it's kind of understandable why Lot might go with him because Lot's father has died. So maybe he's following Abraham as his surrogate father. This is his uncle. But at the same time, why doesn't Lot just stay behind and become the new Abraham, to Terah and take his inheritance. Does Lot really want to follow him because he believes in this God? Maybe. But we're going to learn later that Lot doesn't really adopt the covenant. He doesn't really become it. In fact, Lot becomes an obstacle to Abram. And so we're introduced to three things that might kill the promises of God. Lot has gone with him, which is his old way of life. It's going to also get Abram in trouble in so many different ways. There's Canaanites living in the land, and Sarai is, bar- is born barren. All three of these is what the rest of the story is going to deal with overcoming. And that's the main focus of the story here. So Abram goes exactly where God tells him, and he goes to Canaan. And in Canaan, he builds an altar. He comes down in Canaan. Oh, here's, by the way, there's the highways. So he would come down from Damascus all the way down what's called the Way of the Sea and then cut over to Shechem here. And he builds an altar to God. He builds an altar to God, and he begins to worship, and he sacrifices to him. Now, he notices that, if you keep reading this, he goes to Shechem, and then he goes down to Bethel and Ai, but he goes between them. Every time Abram goes somewhere, he doesn't go into the city. He stays outside the city and builds an altar and sacrifices to God. Because he's not, he doesn't want to be a part of these people. These people are messed up.